Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Welcome to Rational in Portland. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a firefighter staff crisis here in Portland, and public safety is at risk in our city. A lot of us know that. I think one thing a lot of us don't know is how in trouble our fire department is, how in trouble our emergency services generally are in. People hear about wait times on 911, et cetera. I, I don't think a lot of people understand the gravity of the public safety risk that this city is currently taking, undergoing, engaged in. And we're going to hear more about that today. We've got a couple of firefighters in the studio. Why don't the two of you introduce yourselves? Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, my name is Isaac McLennan, and uh, I'm the president of the Portland Firefighter Association. And my name is Maria Fuge, and I am a vice president of the Portland Firefighters Association. And if people want a channel of communication that's coming from the firefighters so they can get up to speed on what is going on, where do they go? How do they find you? Yeah, well, we are uh, on social media is the easiest way to, to grab a hold of, all, of any messages that we're sending out. And you can find us at the uh, handle at IAFF43. And we're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, you know, Twitter, it seems to be the most easiest way to s- disseminate information quickly because uh, to, to the media and to the public. But we also, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, using Instagram, the power of an image uh, or, or, or Facebook, uh, you know, power of images, text, and, and, um, and links. And then Isaac McLennan, you also have a personal Twitter feed that I find quite helpful. And you're at Isaac McLennan on Twitter as well, yeah. right? I, yep. And that's I-S-A-A-C-M-C-L-E-N-N-A-N on Twitter. What, what is this crisis in the fire department and when did it begin? Yeah, so it's, it's one of these uh, areas that has been kind of brewing for a while. And the reason that you're just hearing about it kind of now and recently is because it's kind of come to a head and uh, firefighters are telling me that they're overworked their, the morale in the firehouses is the lowest that they've ever experienced in their 25-some-odd-year career. Uh, and so they're telling me, the president of the union, that it's, it's, it's enough's enough and something needs to be done. Largely, largely, firefighters are the type of people who put their noses down and get to work. When there's a crisis, when there's a problem, we just respond. We, 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 we put others above ourselves every single day. And we do that selflessly because, quite frankly, um, that's just it's, uh, it's just what's in our DNA. And so, you know, you ask a firefighter, hey, uh, you know, if you see something, in, a problem with somebody, say they have a medical emergency, well, they, they, they'll get to work and they'll solve that problem. But when it's themselves that are having a crisis or themselves that are struggling or dealing with something, they would, we're not one to ask for help. We're just not. We're very 
independent people. We're problem solvers. We're great at solving others' problems, but we're not great at solving our own. But what we're experiencing now with this staffing crisis is it's really being pushed. It's pushing firefighters to their limit. So how did we get here? Started with the staffing. Uh, we, we cut. We've been the fire bureau has been systematically cut since 2016. You're talking 13 million dollars over over the last you know four to six years now. What was the impetus for the beginning of the cuts, if you know? Yeah, so it's basically it's a matter of uh, reallocation of city resources. And so what the city does is it simply asks each bureau in the city, say we need a two percent cut, a five percent cut, a three percent cut. So over that period of time, it has been systematically cut because the city is putting money and resources into other programs. And like I just mentioned, firefighters just keep doing what they can do with what they have. And so slowly squeezing the budget, that puts pressure uh, not being able to hire people. It closes, it shut down training for a year. Uh, so that means we can't, that's 48 firefighters back when they shut down training that were being hired per, per year, 48 per year. If, we, that, if that would have continued, we wouldn't be in the staffing crisis. On top of that, the, the budget office did not put the correct number of positions into the budget. So you've got three main factors here. One, the shutting down of training. Two, the systematic uh, recurring budget cuts over the years that have squeezed our budget. And then the last one, which is really uh, our, uh, our inability to attract and retain new employees. People are leaving the fire department um, they're resigning before their retirement age. That is unheard of. So that those three those three things are really the, the key to how, what we find ourselves in. The, the the real fix is we need to hire people, attract and retain them, uh, and that that doesn't just happen overnight. The problem today is how we're going to keep our fire station staffed. The solution is, is we want to work with the city to come up with a solution where. Firefighters are, are willing to give up their time off to come back and work for overtime um, because right now they're just so overworked. We're so understaffed that people that a small minority of us are having to work a large majority of the overtime, and that's not sustainable. That's the situation we find ourselves in. Maria? Yeah, so I think the biggest part is there's not enough people willing to work once they've already finished their shift. So we work 24 hours and 48 hours at a time. That's a shift. And to ask somebody to work 72 hours or 96 hours is a lot to ask. So we're asking people to come in on their off when they should be home with their families, come in and start working those. Because right now, as soon as we get off our shift of the 48, 24 hours, we're being forced to stay an extra up to 24 hours because they don't have someone to cover us. And so um, that's what we're asking the city is that instead of being uh, at the risk of being disciplined, we're being forced to stay um, beyond our normal shift, is try to find an incentive to have people come in on their off days and help out for that 24-hour shift. Do you have a proposal for what the incentive should be? We've come with several proposals. Um, our latest was to increase their overtime a half time more so that it would, finding daycare or, you know, taking care of aging parents, it, it financially becomes worth it to leave those responsibilities at home and come support um, your work. And obviously 
we don't consider it just work. It's a calling. He kind of alluded to that. And so, um, but being able to incentivize a little bit instead of punish if we can't do it. Um, because that's what's happening right now. If, if you have to go home and take care of whatever responsibility at home and they don't have somebody to cover that shift, either that station gets shut down, that fire engine, that fire truck gets shut down, or the person is disciplined for um, saying they, they have other responsibilities and can't work. And this is really, the discipline comes after a, a, a firefighter has already completed a 48, a 72, or even a 96-hour shift straight. And then... Because of the short staffing, they're told, well, we need you to stay an additional shift. And they're exhausted. And they say, no, I physically can't. Or I, my, my family is needing me. I've been away for 96 hours straight. I need to go home to my family. So they're, they're, they're being basically, they're going to be reprimanded uh, if they leave or stay and possibly risk their own health and safety. So I think that's kind of the real take-home message is, how does this impact the people who live in here in Portland? And the reason it impacts them is because it affects their safety directly. Not only when we see daily staffing cuts like we saw uh, just yesterday on Saturday, but um, this is happening routinely. Talk about the staffing cuts on Saturday. Yeah. So on the on so just last Saturday and and uh, many times, uh, you know, in in the, several times in the last month, we've seen reductions in our daily staffing. So we there, there for those who don't know, there's 31 fire stations in Portland. And they're scattered all throughout the city. And each one of those stations has a specific number of firefighters in it. And all of that has been designed so that the city can be covered uh, safely in the event of a fire anywhere. And even with that current staffing number, and I'll just tell you the number is 169 firefighters on duty each day. Even with that number where it is, there are areas that are unprotected. And so uh, at, at what we're, we're, what's happening is we're seeing that number drop. So those areas that have, say, a fire station has four people in it that ride on a fire engine, or maybe it has eight people, eight firefighters that have four on a fire engine and four on a fire truck, or six, or any combination of that, it's designed specifically to handle the, the call types that come into those fire management areas. Those, that's what we call them. So there's 31 of those sort of geographically all over the city of Portland, and um, so area, the neighborhoods that are really have been impacted lately are uh, Lentz neighborhood, Montevilla. The forever forgotten Lentz neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> the forever forgot, forgotten Lentz neighborhood, yes. And, and Montevilla, too. And it, Mount also Tabor. completely ignored by the city much of the time. Who, who else? Yeah, so Montevilla, uh-huh. uh, uh, Mount Tabor, Foster Powell. Yep, Foster uh, Powell. It's that's sort of that. And then you kind of you work your way a little bit uh uh, west to towards uh, say 12th and Powell, and that's where Station 23 is. So that that area there, so that's uh, Crest, Crestwell, Brooklyn, uh, Abernathy. I'm there text, you're testing my it's neighborhood geography right now. Primarily southeast Portland. That's right. Yep. So uh, what's the how do what what <laughs> I think for for me if, as a person I live here in the city of Portland. What scares me is that at any day. There's no way that the public knows what their st- that their fire station has just been reduced in the number of firefighters. That is a direct impact to your safety. If you firefighters are what puts out fires, you know, the hoses and nozzles and fire trucks and fire engines and ladders and tools, they don't do anything when they're just sitting there uh, on a fire station. You need a firefighter to get 
in a fire truck, drive those tools and equipment to your house and solve your problem. You, we cannot do that without firefighters. And that's what we're trying to bring awareness to is that what we're seeing is these reduction in daily, in daily staffing. And it's happening without anyone knowing about it. There's no call to the public saying, hey, hey, everybody, we've just reduced the number of firefighters in your city today. You might want to be concerned about your safety. And you all came on my radar because we have all these listeners on Twitter who were paying attention to your Twitter feed and alarmed and shocked at the information that they were reading. And that's, it's shocking. It is shocking. And, and, and to fairness, there are, you know, there, there was a story out actually this morning on uh, uh, Fox 12 Oregon. Uh, there, they, the, the other news agencies have been picking up our stories. We need to listen to, to you all because what are we without public safety? We're not a city. That's, that's kind of the foundation of a city in my mind as well. You need, you need access to clean water and you need access to public safety. That's a, as a foundation. Yeah, absolutely. How do you not only get more funding, how do you get the, all this money back that you've lost? Well, I mean, that's the other side of it, right? I mean, there are people who pay taxes in the city of Portland. Don't, when, when you see a reduction in your, the daily number of firefighters on duty, you didn't get a rebate that Well, and the day. taxes aren't <laughs> lower. Uh, well, not to mention the station 23, that, that station 23 mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier on the corner of 12th and Powell, roughly in that area. That area right now currently only staffed with two people. That doesn't even have a four-person fire engine in it. The only station in the city of Portland doesn't have one. Now, we were able to, the union was able to work with the fire, the fire bureau and we were able to res- secure a federal grant. That fe- grant money will fund the, that station to have a, a actual proper four-person fire engine in it, but that won't start till next year. So we, we have a crisis. I mean, if there's a fire today, right now, in that area, you don't have, that station doesn't have a fire engine. <laughs> no hose, no water, you know, no ability to put, no, not the proper number of firefighters to go do the job. I mean, I, I frankly find it outrageous that you're engaged in begging for money via a grant process. <laughs> it's not right. It's not the way it should be. But thankfully, the federal government has bailed the city out and bailed that community out so they can have a proper fire engine. And what's so strange to me is that things like this clean energy fund are, quote unquote, a wash in cash. That is what every media outlet is reporting. And yet we don't have enough. I mean, we don't have enough money to staff our fire department. It's it's mind blowing. The the number of nonprofits that are getting rich off the city wall, uh, the firefighters go unstaffed is bizarre. And um, my understanding is Joanne Hardesty, who is the city commissioner, she's up for a re-election, of course. She's running against Gon- Renee Gonzalez. You all have re- endorsed Renee, which I think is telling. Yeah. And she, Re- Joanne Hardesty, the current city commissioner, uh, you're her bureau. Fire is her bureau. It's one of, I would say one of the most important bureaus in this city next to uh, Wheeler being in charge of the PPB. And Joanne Hardesty, my understanding, took credit for getting you that federal money. <laughs> yeah. It, did, was she involved in this grant writing process at all? I think she can take credit where credit's due. And I would say that every grant has to be approved by city council to apply for the grant and to receive the grant funds. Now, uh, I don't know to what credit she's due beyond that. I, I could say none. Because I know that when I brought this issue up in J- December of 2021, I was 
why aren't we applying for this federal saver grant that can staff this fire station that has been without a fire engine since 2010? 2010 was the last time a fire engine sat in that fire station. So that whole neighborhood is unprotected and has been since then. So, so when I became president uh, just in January, I pushed the issue again. Again, hitting a roadblock. Well, we don't have we don't have the ability to apply for it. We applied for it before and we didn't get it. And I was like, what what to, but you didn't ask us, the firefighters, for any help. We have a lot of experience in working with uh, working with these grants and me specifically. So so when I uh, I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you if you just would show me or give me give me access to submit it, I will do all of the work to up front. And so finally, uh, there was a couple people on the uh, fire bureau's administration staff that was said, okay, we'll help you. We can do this part if you do all the narrative sections of it. You can write all those narrative pieces, and then we will submit it. And so within about three days, we had compiled all of that information and, and submitted it. And, uh, yeah, so to what degree Joanna Hardesty can take credit for that, I have no idea. I honestly, it baffles me other than to say, it sounds really good, but it just ain't true. Who on city council, if anybody, as far as you know, voted against that process? Nobody voted against it. It's, so, it's, anybody so she's taking voted. credit for her vote. I would even go as far as to say probably consent agenda votes. I don't think there was any debate at all. So the consent agenda, you know what that is. It's just basically a list of items that don't have any don't have any opposition there's agreement to that's right why do we have commissioners in charge of these bureaus if they're not advocating for their own bureau so do you think that this inability to hire the people that you need is i mean where does that stem out of why aren't why aren't we getting uh, more people is it funding is it morale is it a combination is it because they're reading the news and they're learning that 50 percent of what you do is putting out fires at homeless encampments i do know it's been a trend i mean since 2019 is when that first year that training was shut down completely and we were 48 employees less than what we should have had we continued training. Why was training shut down in 2019? To save money. Correct. No training? They shut down training because uh, they were trying to find creative ways to save money under uh, when they were asked to cut budgets. So they shut down training. And while at the time we were flush with people in 2019, when you don't hire 48 people and then 48 people retire... You can't just magically snap. It takes two years to make a firefighter. From the moment you say, hey, everybody, you have a recruitment, which, by the way, a recruitment starting here uh, next, next month. Uh, in, this, in the month of November. Yeah, November 7th. Oh, uh, November 7th. Okay, so anybody out there who's interested mm-hmm. should apply, and where do they go to do that? You can apply. You can go right through the uh, portlandoregon.gov slash fire. Click on the jobs link. Okay, good. Um, and then why were they asked to cut budgets in 2019? Were we missing money? Was money being redirected? What Do you have any understanding of what was going on there? This has been part of the thing that we've seen since 2016 and really before that. It's just, is the city's, the way in which the city budgets is to simply ask every bureau to say, show me what 5% cuts looks like. And then you have to advocate for your bureau to get back whatever it is you just told them that you could cut to save 5%. The problem is 
as uh, while I'm a firefighter, so I, uh, I have been for 20 years in the city. I, we have, we have for the last 10 to 12 years, really, that it's probably been about that long that we've trimmed whatever you would call fat. We've trimmed whatever you would call muscle. And now we're down to basically slicing off the bone. We can, we can barely roll these rigs out of the, uh, because every system has been cut that supplies the ability of firefighters to roll those red rigs out of the station. That's the primary function of the fire bureau is to, is to respond to fires and, and medical emergencies and, and when people, are, people need rescuing or become entrapped. Uh, and while we can, can sustain for a period of time when you cut those back-end positions out, like training, like logistics, like our EMS division, eventually you're going to hit the end of that lifespan and now you're going to start wearing the system out and that's where we are right now. Systematic cuts over a long period of time, shutting down training, did not hiring people, not putting the correct number of people in the budget as they were uh, supposed to, and now the inability to attract and retain new employees. We, we're trying desperately to attract people. We have done, for the very first time, lateral hires, which quickly just, it's kind of nerdy, but essentially a lateral hire means you can come over from another fire department to come work for Portland, and you'll be at an elevated level of pay, and a, a reduced amount of training to put you into the programs faster. We've never done lateral hires before, ever, in the history of 130-some-year history of Portland Fire We haven't had to. There you go. And now we find ourselves in this position. But I think it's important for anybody out there who's listening, who's thinking about making a move, it sounds like they'll be, if they do this lateral hire process, they'll be rewarded, and um, obviously you're needed I mean, if, if this if you feel like this is your calling, Portland is a place where you're desperately needed. And it's a re, it's a very rewarding job when you're not in a staffing crisis. So once we get ourselves out of this mess, which we will eventually, it will just take some time. But in the meantime, we we have to deal with what's here right now, and that's what we're trying to bring awareness to on Twitter is to say the staffing crisis is re, is hitting the streets today. If there's a large fire, if there's a major medical incident in a certain area when they've got staffing cuts, that's going to have a direct impact on people's safety and livelihoods. If we can't make it to the, to the call, whether it's a house fire or a cardiac arrest, within five minutes, the, the chance of survival to, to, um, deteriorates uh, dramatically. And it's to the point where this is undisputed facts. You can research this. Everybody's been posting on this kind of thing. Fires double in size, structure fires double in size every minute. So you can see a delay in response is going to have a, a dramatic impact on our ability to save life and property. And how do you all interact with the 911 system? Because we know that that's in crisis. Anybody who's, and it's myriad people across the city who've been, I think, I don't know, I think every single person I know now has been a crime victim and tried to call 911 and, or even on emergency and, uh, it's busy. They can't get through. There's a three-hour hold. What? What have you? How does this crisis at the fire department interact with 911? Because, because aren't you beholden to those calls? <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll just start. Maybe Monica can chime in too. I know she has some say too. But I, I, I will say this: is we, we are. So when people call 911, they call uh, the BOEC BOAC, as it's sometimes called dispatchers. And so of emergency communications. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, but so those, those folks are who receive the call. 
and then it's sent into it. All that information is put into a computer, and then the proper units are dispatched, whether it's a police call, a medical call, or a fire or some other type of call that goes into another dispatch system. But there's been times that uh, because people have been put on hold for 10, 12 minutes, that they just gave up. They drove to their neighborhood fire station in their car, and they were banging on the front door telling us that there's a fire down the street. So there's a problem with the dispatch system as well. And, you know, while we don't represent as the firefighters, we're firefighters, we're not the dispatchers, we obviously need dispatchers in order to do our job effectively. We need to know about the fire. We need to know about that car accident down the street. We need to know about grandma having a heart attack or your father, your mother, your or God forbid, your children having some sort of major medical incident. We need to know about that immediately. There cannot be a delay so that we can hop on those fire trucks and race to your, uh, race to wherever you are and save your life, save your family's life. That's what we want. That's what all of us got this. That's all of us became firefighters for that very reason. And when you tell us we can't do that, we don't have enough people, we're going to shut rigs down. That is demoralizing. Mm -hmm. And I talked about that in the beginning. The morale is so low, it's palpable. People are just don't know what to do. And right now, you know, we need our elected officials to be leaders. That's what we're asking them to do. Be a leader. Don't just be an elected official. Be a leader. You know, take, take this seriously and do something about it. Make sure that your, your fire stations are fully staffed. And take care of your firefighters because they're here to take care of all of us. And we're willing to sacrifice everything for this community. That's what Literally we signed up to life. do. Well, mm -hmm. if, if we have to, we will do that. So, uh, Absolutely. And everybody understands that. Everybody understands that. When you, when you put the badge on, when you raise your right hand, you swear an oath, that's exactly the deal you made. So it's, uh, and it's, it's, it's definitely a, something that we all hold dearly, and we just want our you know, elected leaders to, to help, us do, help us carry that out in a way that um, can allow us to work with dignity. And when we see, when we see an issue like this, when you're closing down fire engines and fire trucks, that's dangerous. That is dangerous. And someone's going to get hurt. And we don't want today to be that day. We don't want tomorrow to be that day. And it's, it, there's the solutions there. And if it's not what the union's proposing, that's fine. We just don't want to come to you with a problem without also offering you a solution. If they have a solution, we're all ears. We're all ears. We're ready to work with the, our elected officials to make sure that every station has a Full complement of firefighters, no shortages whatsoever. That's what we want. And I think one of the frustrating pieces for us is that we are similar to uh, the dispatchers in that whatever emergency they're receiving, we're responding to. Um, and Commissioner Maps, while we were trying to work with Commissioner Hardesty on some kind of way to incentivize the firefighters to work overtime, Commissioner Mapp was working with the dispatchers, and he was able to push forward and approve overtime because emergency is communications under, is his bureau. It is. And so what we had presented to Commissioner Hardesty, Commissioner Maps had been working on, I don't know if it was simultaneously, um, but we found out a little bit later that he had approved that for his dispatchers. And it was just like, oh, the two of them, it's emergency services, could have worked together. Um, but when we talked to Commissioner Maps, he had no idea that Commissioner Hardesty had even been approached. Um, with any kind of idea on how to improve um, her own bureau. Her, <laughs> correct. Well, and I think 
what speaks volumes about the crisis that you're in is that you're not endorsing your current commissioner. You're endorsing her challenger. And the way you've been kneecapped by this city, I that's a huge risk. And it must be terrifying. Because if she stays on, what does that mean for Portland Fire? I mean, I think it's just really important that if you support Portland Fire, you need to follow their endorsement on Renee Gonzalez. We can't have this bureau further kneecapped. Well, it, let's just say this. It's really on the subject of Renee Gonzalez. He understands what this city needs to be safe. That's why we're supporting Renee Gonzalez. He has already shown that he's willing to listen to firefighters and listen to our concerns and hear our ideas about what it takes to keep this city safe. We're not here to arrest people. We're not here to put people in handcuffs. We're here to put out fires. We're here to rescue people. We're here to make sure that people are safe, have a safe place to, 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 to live here, to work here, to play here. It's palpable how close we are to becoming that city again. We just need the right people in office to carry that forward. It's no question to us. And, you know, uh, I, obviously when you, when you, you, you go on Twitter and you start talking about politics, people are, viewpoints are all over the place. Firefighters, it's very simple. Which candidate is going to make it safer to, to live here, to work here, and to play here? And for us, there's only one answer to that. That's Renee Gonzalez. When was the last time that your commissioner, Joanne Hardesty, who's running for re-election, when was the last time that she met with you all? Uh, she meets with, uh, she, met, she met with me uh, every other month for half an hour for about four or five months or so. When I first, because I was elected president in January and it was in, it was like February, April, June, those three months, she met with me for half an hour uh, each one of those three months over Zoom. Over Zoom. Oh, from the governing from the couch, as she puts it. That's exactly what, yeah. So she wouldn't meet you in person? No. Would And and was the invitation open for an in-person meeting? I'm assuming it was. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we actually invited her down for an endorsement opportunity to meet with our political action uh, committee. Denied. She didn't want to do that. We invited her to come speak in front of our uh, uh, general membership meeting in September. Denied. So that's when it was pretty clear to us that she was checked out. She was no longer interested in talk, with talking with us. She was not interested in ideas about how to keep Portland safe. And that's when we, uh, we, we had already been speaking with uh, Renee Gonzalez earlier in, in September. We had an opportunity to meet with him. Our PAC board asked him a bunch of questions. It was clear to us that he was focused on making sure that Portland was a safe place to live and work and play. And that's that's for us is, uh, you know, we want people to be safe in our community. We, we, we want to be there when, in their moment when, when there's an emergency. We want when people call on 911. We want to respond. We want to be there for them. But ideally, we'd rather them not call at all. Ideally, we'd like them just to be safe without the fire department, knowing that they're there in case of an emergency. But, you know, we, it's been, we have, where every year our call volume goes up for service. Every year our population goes up. But guess what? One thing that doesn't go up the number of firefighters. The same number of firefighters have been in Portland for the last 20-some years. No increase to that number, while population uh, and, call, and calls for service have gone up. 
The hard part for us is that on the east side seems to be a little bit higher uh, in the number of increase in calls, and that's where the stations are getting resources and firefighters cut from. And I live on the east side of Portland. I border Lens neighborhood. So personally, I'm affected because it is my house that now has to, that fire station has to cover for the stations that have been cut, which means that they're out of place if something happens at my house. And, you know, that's when I started really getting involved is like, it is where I work, it is where I live, and it is where I play. And now that's being affected. And I have to do something and I have to be vocal. I can't just put my nose down and try to work with what we have because that keeps getting taken away. And now it is personally affecting my family and myself in my fam my work family and my home family. Yeah, I mean so. Maddie and I both have young kids. Both of us live in areas like she just mentioned, she lives in an area that's just seeing these the impacts of these cuts to firefighters and and uh, uh you know, I live up in the Roseway neighborhood just north of Tabor where station 19 is. So we're also impacted by that. You know, it's, uh, it's not only does it impact us at work, but it impacts us at home. We're victims of the very scenario that we're also here to try to protect. Mm -hmm. So we understand it from both perspectives. That's very scary when you're trying to raise young kids and you know that basic what, what most cities would consider to be a basic service, when, when you know that it's that much in trouble and you know it firsthand because that's your job, it's it's a scary risk. And yeah. so I, I appreciate you both not just doing the job that you're doing here in the city, but staying in the city of Portland while others have fled, right? I mean, are, are you having a, a, a lot of turnover? Yeah, you know, like I said, I mentioned in 2021, I think there's been eight firefighters that resigned um, prior to retirement. That's just an unheard of number, I think, total. of it went back in the history of the Portland Fire Department. I think 20 people have ever resigned, eight of them just last year. That's staggering to me. That's a staggering number. You know, I mean, just my wife's car just got stolen the other day. Our, Your wife's uh, car just got stolen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it got stolen. It had two car seats in the back strapped in. Those are gone. You know, it's, that's uh, the kind of, it's, it's hard. It's hard to live here. And, you know, just, it wasn't just a week prior that our entire neighborhood got their tires flat. It was like 74 cars I got there. Yeah, that was my it neighborhood. national news. Yeah, that was my neighborhood right outside of all of our cars, just all four right. tires, just knife in the side of the car and or knife in the side of the tire and all four you can't just you can't just put on a spare when you flatten all four tires uh, and yeah to when when the my wife's car got stolen uh it was it's just the other day i was i was headed to work and so anyway not to bring up my no, personal go ahead, please i, I want to hear about it because i think it's a livability issue that i think renee speaks to yeah well uh it was i'll just say this it was extremely frustrating uh, luckily, we were able to find the car because my wife was smart enough to put one of those little Apple AirTag trackers in there. And wow. so she had just put that in her car. So uh, uh, it wasn't, they only had the car for about four and a half hours, but the entire ignition system was ripped out. And so they they basically bypassed it. But we were able to, basically, we stole the car back is what we did. I found it four hours later. And, you uh, took it in your own hands. I, yeah, otherwise yeah. it'd be gone. Yes, it would. 
So there's no, there's no, there's no question in my mind that we had basically a limited amount of time to find it. And thankfully she had that tracker in there because if she wouldn't have that tracker in there, gone, no way. And isn't it true that things in fact have become so dangerous around here? Firefighters have been issued bulletproof vests. Yeah. All of us have have bulletproof vests. Now that's a new addition to our, uh, every fire engine, every fire truck has uh, one per person. Well, I'm glad you have it. Because, uh, you know, some of these situations are really dangerous. A lot of people wouldn't have been as brave as you are to go get their car, even though that would be the only means at this point of retrieving it. That's the kind of, like, public safety crisis that we're in here in the city. Um, so, I mean, what was that process like? You going to get that car? Yeah. Were you well, scared? Did oh, you have yeah. the bulletproof vest on? Uh, Boy, I no. <laughs> no, I was careful as much as I possibly could think of. I was careful. But, yeah, I... Uh, I went back inside my house. I woke my wife up. I was like, hey, your car's been stolen. I need to see your phone so I can look at where the tracker is. I saw where the tracker was, and so I just drove to see if I could find it. Uh, at first, I couldn't find it, and so then I started driving in every uh, parking lot in the area until I located it, and um, once I found it, I called her back. I said, hey, I need to come, let's come home. Let's, I found your car. Let's, you know, it's only been about 4. It was stolen about 2.30 in the morning, and, we, and I found it about just after 7 a.m., so I figured whoever stole it was probably sleeping at that point in time, uh, was Good my bad. guess. Anyway, once we got it, once I was able, once we were able to get inside, it was just I never started a car without an ignition system in it. So you, that's my first one of those uh, that I've ever had to do. So that, but How yeah. How did you even figure that out? I don't know. MacGyvered <laughs> it. So I didn't have any tools with me. I just had my own vehicle keys, and so I was just messing around with using a key as a screwdriver basically until I found the the part that looked like it was part of the ignition system and it it worked so it got once it was started at that point we were like obviously nervous about if they heard mm-hmm. that sound if they would be concerned and so we just got out of there as fast as possible but interestingly so she was my wife when she got down there we're both you know we're both anxious about the situation sure. we're we're just not we're not normal re we don't normally uh do anything like this so we're all uh we're definitely heightened and our adrenaline's pumping but she was she had called 911 because she was, because she wanted to get a cop down there. Because we're, because we at the time when she first got there, she was like, "Okay, I'm going to call a cop to get a person down here." So because if we can't get this vehicle started, I'm concerned that they're going to see us out here messing with this too. car yeah. and they're going to come after us. So, but we, she was on hold for like seven minutes before she even got somebody on the phone. And of course, you know, they're very dispatchers are great. They're great people, and he was very helpful uh, talking to her until while I was working on getting the car started. And then once the car started, we were like, "Okay." We're leaving and we're going to go back to our house. And this is, she'd already given the home address to the dispatcher at that point. Uh, so it was, you know, anyway, that's our story. That's my story anyway. It's kind of personal, but it's kind of different. And anyway. I think it really illustrates the kind of crisis that we're dealing with here in this city when you can just come in for a, for a podcast about the crisis of the fire department. And then it turns out that it's this myriad of livability issues that I think we've all experienced we're all certainly reading about um, living in the city of Portland, and you yourself just experienced one of them acutely, like going out to reti- retrieve the car yourself. In fact, I just read an article, I think it was in the New York Times, about how some group has put together a, I don't know if it, it must be a, I don't know if it's a business or if they're just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. I'm assuming it's a business, but they'll find your car for you when it gets stolen. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
that so that's kind of where we're at in this. I mean, I feel like that combined with the vignette you just told kind of says it all about what's going on around here. Yeah, I know there's a, I, heard, I heard there's like a Facebook group or, or something like that. That, that was, might be what it originated. Uh, that was that was one here in Portland. I know they were basically finding cars and they were trying to find their owners and. But yeah, there's. Anyway. I knew it. It kind of ties into when we respond on calls now. It used to be all four of us would kind of jump in to do the work, and now a lot of times we've assigned. At, at a lot of the stations, I know each station kind of has their own personality and way they do things, but we've assigned one person that is just the lookout because we're going on so many calls that are so odd and people are so unpredictable um, and we don't have police to respond. And a lot of the calls that we used to go on, uh, it was an automatic police dispatch with us and overdoses, those kind of, um, and now they don't have a staff either. Um, to arrive, and so a lot of times we're going into these calls unprotected by them, um, and so we're having to provide that protection for ourselves. And of course, we're making it do, but that's one less person that is doing the medical care on the patient because we're having to do a dual role of being that safety lookout, um, however best we can protect ourselves too. Every so. role, yeah, really, we, yeah. yeah. It's 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 weird. I mean, we have we have where I work in east the east side of town, we have a person who. Has routinely just whenever we drive by, we'll find whatever they can throw at, throw just throw right at the fire truck, whether it be a mm -hmm. rock, or whatever they have in their hand, they throw it, and it's just like, oh, there he is again, and bam, we get hit with something else. Is this somebody who appears to be homeless? Uh, I don't know. Well, we know who he is. Uh, he's been taken away at one point or another, but he's just they don't they, don't, they can't keep him. He's well, they can't keep anybody. Apparently. No, yeah. well, that's the problem. He's definitely he's suffering from mental illness, behavioral health issues, without a question of a doubt. But what do we do with people like that that are jeopardizing the firefighters? As we, you know, that you're driving at 35 miles an hour down 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 the street when something hits, you know, gets thrown at you. The windows roll down. Like what's raining? It's raining now, so the windows are generally speaking, they're up. But that's gonna hurt. Uh, oh, it's dangerous. It could kill somebody if you, you, you got you a could, big enough object. Absolutely. So that's that's happening. You know, uh, today. I mean, it was. It seems like every day there's. I spot it, we spot him, and there it is again. Oh, it, boom, he hits, this, hits the fire truck with something else. I, You asked, you know, what do we do about this? I mean, I think Joanne Hardesty's answer is Portland Street Response. But it's my understanding that the training budget for Portland Street Response for 70 people is more than the entire training budget for 700 firefighters. That was relayed to me. I... Um I'm on light duty right now because I just injured myself, and that was relayed to me. Um, I work in, am working under the training division, and they said the entire Portland Fire, which PSR is under Portland Fire, um, a division of but Portland Fire. But it is Fire, separate. But it has a separate training budget, a separate budget with it. So. Yeah, it's a budget within the Fire Bureau. So you have so the, it, the, the Bureau of Portland Fire and Rescue, you have five divisions, Underneath that, one of those is the community health division. Underneath community health is Portland Street Response, one of the branches. So because it's a brand new program, there's a lot of onboarding, a lot of new equipment, a lot of new. So that training budget is what you're, I think you're talking about, how it's. Yes. I, haven't, I haven't seen the data on that, so I don't know specifically the, your question. But, um, yeah, so I, I'd have to uh, relay on Madia, but that's. Uh, I do know it's a new program, and they're and they're increasing the number. It's a twenty. I think it's now it's a twenty four seven operation. So I think they're around the clock operation now. So that 
hiring more people and onboarding them, that, that training, I guess, it must be costing a lot of money if that's the case. Um, I think that's putting it lightly. <laughs> um, my understanding is it was started out of money that was uh, when the she led the effort to defund the police in 2020. It was started with four and change million that she took from the police budget. But I feel like it's just this, we've got this never-ending, infinite dysfunction in this city where we're, like, for instance, we're taking money from the police budget to fund this, some new program. And in the meantime, crime is skyrocketing out of control. Homicides are skyrocketing out of control. Um, you all, uh, homelessness is, I, I think, the number one. The governors are all saying that's the number one issue they're hearing about. Is, is that stat right? 50% of your work is putting out fires and explosions at homeless encampments? Oh, I don't know if it's that high. It is on the rise. They did put, I saw some statistics just recently uh, that talks about the number of fires. That's what was reported, 50%. Uh, 50% of the f- number of fires, perhaps. Not the number of calls total, but yeah, of the number of fires we go on, half of those. That, that sounds about right. But I think that that's telling that you say that that rings true with your experience as a firefighter. Oh, yeah. We go on homeless fires a ton. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, our, yeah, where I worked alone is all the time. Do you think it's realistic for firefighters to run EMS services instead of that this company that we contract with, AMR, Emergency Medical, or excuse me, um, is it American Medical Response? Yes. Maria saying, shaking her head, yeah, yeah, up and down, yes, absolutely. And why couldn't you all, like in a lot of cities, run the EMS services um, if you were fully funded? Absolutely, we totally could. I mean, the reality is, uh, you know, uh, public ambulance services is already provided in the state of Oregon and other jurisdictions. Um, But uh, you know, AMR does a good job. I've worked in other jurisdictions besides Portland, so I know what it looks like to work in a jurisdiction that has public ambulance versus a private ambulance. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get too much in the, in the weeds, but I would say from my vantage point, I think a public ambulance service makes more sense for the community. I know that's been a conversation before each time we're up for a contract with the AMR. And I, I believe the chat response is kind of starting to model that a little bit. Um, Which they, response? Chat or community health and treatment. Okay, I don't know. Can you tell us about this program? So that's part of the division uh, on that PSR is a branch, uh, one side, and then chat. And is PSR the other. is Portland Street Response. Portland okay. Street Response. So it's Portland Street Response and community health, health and treatment. treatment. So yeah. they are the ones that are taking kind of our low acuity medical calls. Portland Street Response is taking a lot of the um, police. We used to be police type codes, mental health emergencies. Um, kind of not necessarily a medical issue, whereas chat is um, maybe somebody has a hurt leg, they don't necessarily need to go to the hospital, but they don't have a way to take care of themselves. Or um, it's also been people that kind of, I don't know if abuse is the right word, but the 911 system where they're calling multiple times a day or, you know, The CHAT program, our community health assess and treat, is really there to provide a couple things. One, it's there to provide uh, low acuity medical calls, like Maria said, to relieve so that those fire engines and fire trucks are available for the more critical calls. That's the primary function 
and it's um, all provided for through uh, the healthcare system of Oregon. And it's really designed ultimately to keep people out of the emergency rooms, out of the ambulances that don't need them. So that's kind of the core mission. And uh, I think the system, it's, it's a new program. It's only been around for a little over a year. But it seems like it's working. Mm-hmm. Um, Portland Street Response is, of course, being lauded as a success by Joanne Hardesty. I, I wonder how many and what kind of calls Portland Street Response actually ends up on. Do you have any idea about that? You don't know. I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know that their uh, whole idea is not... Um, like the firefighters, we are an emergency, so we get there, we deal with the immediate emergency, and then we provide maybe uh, contact to resources for um, mitigation later. Um, and Portland Street Response is about taking care of that person from start through um, continued resources. So however long it takes, and I know there's been time where they've talked about sometimes it could take two days. It could take 30 minutes. It's whatever. But there isn't that we need to move on to the next emergency. They just take it until it's, they feel like it's gone to a resolution, and then they can move on. And so uh, it's not intended to be a rapid... Um, Portland Street Response is not intended to be a first responder to an emergency event. Is that what you're saying? It, it really, it, you know, uh, it, the program is... Quite frankly, it could be a good program, but it never should have been a replacement for the police. That's the to, to add to Portland could have, you know, I think that that could when I look at that program, I think, that, you know what, there's a need for it, but it shouldn't have been at uh, and the literal expense of that's mm-hmm. right. How can our listeners support you? What can we do to take care? And this was a question from a listener. What can we do to take care of the first responders that take care of us? Well, uh, honestly, and this, honestly. normally we don't ask people for help. Mm-mm. We just, we're happy to do our jobs. We're social, you know, we're, we're, we're social servants. We like to respond to people in need. That said, right now we find ourselves in a bit of a crisis. And now what we need is for you to reach out to your elected officials and say, we don't want our fire department cut. We don't want our stations closed. We want them open. We want them responding to our emergencies. You know, we want a, the, the quality fire department that we have, expe- you know, grown to expect. And that's what, we're, that's what we want uh, people to do. That's what you can do to help us is to make sure that our message is being heard, that we don't want to see these daily, daily cuts to firefighters. We don't want to see the, uh, the, the number of firefighters reduced in our fire stations. It's dangerous. And that's right now we find ourselves in a unique place that we're actually, that the roles are reversed. Normally we're there to respond to people. Now we need people to respond to us. You know, it's having you both in here and talking to Maria offline a couple days ago. I have completely and totally reversed my personal, I, I had a personal bias. I got, I got to be candid with you all. I just feel like um, I had a personal bias against public unions. And I have since then realized in this city, in the city of Portland, I think the only thing standing in between utter collapse of those bureaus and therefore societal collapse in this city is the unions. 
we get to be the voice that I know, um, you know, like our fire chief, she is an at-will employee of the commissioner. Um, and so I believe... So she, she can be hi hired and fired by, the, by Joanne Hardesty. Mm -hmm. And we have the blessing in that we're protected by the union and we are able to say what is going on. And we're not trying to make it <coughs> extreme or, you know, make it sound like it's worse than it is. It, it is worse than we're saying. When you asked what can we do, we both looked at each other, and may, if you could see through this microphone, with kind of this angst of like, oh shoot, she's asking us. And it's a really hard, it makes me all tongue-tied just even thinking <laughs> of That's it. That's because so, you're not used no. to, you're used to being the helper. Mm -hmm. So the, I just think it's really telling that both of you, I mean, obviously you're not used to asking the public for help, but this is where we're at. And the only reason we know the truth about any of this is because of your union. Yeah. And I'm just really grateful that it exists. You know, to the listener who asked what, what people can do to help, and that's, you know, firefighters who work, we have, you know, in the city of Portland, they're all over the place. And, and they, what they, when they turn to Maddie and I is because they don't know what to do with all these problems that they're seeing and experiencing. And so they come to Maddie and I, it's like, that's where they go to get help. Is so that that's where I think you were getting to that is the union is their lifeline when they're not getting what they need, when they, when they see a problem, the union is their lifeline to go get that help. But I think we see a lot of changes, uh, whether it be the homeless houses issues, but also just the roads in general, they're adding a lot more changes to the way that the traffic is routed. And I think I see, you know, at least in where I work, it's, uh, it makes it harder to get around. Do we see more traffic now in congested times? And it makes it more difficult because now there's more traffic barriers to get to those calls. I do know we're a little bit more cautious when we're going up to a houseless fire. It's not the same, um, like a house fire is all contained and we understand it. A camp, there's a whole lot of pieces that we don't quite understand yet and propane tanks and things that we don't, yeah, and we, d we don't know where they are. Like in a house, typically it's in the garage or in a shed or something. And so um, there's places where we expect to find hazards in a houseless community, a camp, we don't know where those hazards are. And so I think we approach a little bit more cautiously than we would in a lot of other places just until we get a lay of like, what does this place look like? And if there's RVs or things blocking our initial vision, it, we're a lot more cautious. So. Yeah, I, I'll, tell, I'll start with what I don't see. And that is, there's no smoke alarms in those tents. <laughs> right. There's no sprinkler systems in those tents. There's not fire protection systems with the reason that we you know the building that we're sitting in right now has a problem sure has a all yep. kinds of codes as, and as codes and requirements as it is there because is actually a yeah a little sprinkler right ahead <laughs> a, a, a long time ago somebody figured out that we have to start providing proper fire protection systems in places where people live and sleep and work so what we what we're doing is regressing backwards from that and what you that's why you brought up those campfires it's like they're not designed to be like that they're not designed for people to live like that it's not safe it's not humane and it needs to stop period and it, people are people are dying you know and people are getting hurt uh you know and the number of like you said the number of fires that were going on in those camps is staggering and those doesn't take much for those to get extended into people's homes and businesses that where they're, where they're camped along. A lot of those materials that they used for camping are, are highly flammable. 
right? So they're not, it's just, it's not, um, it's not safe. And so for us, we, as firefighters, we want people to be safe. And that is not a safe place to live. If it, you know, if, if we had proper fire codes of tent camping in the city of Portland, perhaps that would be safe, but we just don't. We don't have that. It's, it's, it's not proper. So, you know, the, the other things you mentioned, I can't speak to that, but I can speak to the fact that I, that's what I, that's what I see is missing is they're just not living in safe conditions. It's dangerous. Yeah. We're probably not going to be seeing the people that are one paycheck away from being in a great place in life. Um, because right. typically they don't call 911 or they don't have 911 called for them. It happens, right? Everybody is subject to a medical emergency um, or a fire. Um, there are accidents that do happen and faulty things, but in general, we respond to people that are struggling. And yeah, and if you respond to people that are struggling and we've let this homeless crisis get out of control the way that we have, it's axiomatic that that's going to take up a heck of a lot of your time. Um, it's my understanding that you all are working mandatory overtime. Oh, yeah. Yes. And that you're under the threat of being disciplined if you say no to the mandatory overtime? That's right. And you've actually been told, I think by Commissioner Hardesty, that working overtime is part of your job? Well, (laughs) I... I don't see how being forced to work mandatory overtime is part of anyone's job. It doesn't seem like a good strategy to me. Uh, for 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 one, um, how can you say to anybody after working a 24 or 48 or 72 sometimes, 72 hour shift, you're, so you're going to say to them, oh, and, and right, right before they go home to their family, last minute, as you're walking out the door, hey, we're going to need you to stay for 24 more hours. That's not... That's like office space on steroids. You know, hey, we're Peter, we're going to have to have you come in on Saturday. <laughs> you know, sure. Uh, an extra day to work for, an, you know, that's not the same thing as not going home when your family is expecting you to be home. You have your children to take care of. You have a life outside of the fire department. You can't just be expected to stay in a fire station endlessly. That's what, the, that's what this is really how frustrating this is. It's one thing to say, hey, look, we're... We have uh, availability to work some overtime. Does anybody want to work it? Sure, I'll work it. It's another one to say, hey, nobody wants to work anymore overtime. We're all overworked. So in response to that is, well, we're going to force you to work then. And then, oh, you can't do it because you have to take care of your kids? Well, we're going to reprimand you then. How about that? How about we suspend you? How about that? And that's what that's, that's basically where we're, where we're at right now. And that's what's so frustrating is that all we want to do is we, we as the union represent the workers and we want to sit down with our elected officials and our managers to say, what's a workable solution? How can we keep our city fully staffed, fully safe without forcing people to work? It's that simple. It's not a complicated mystery. There's a way to do it. And maybe it it might require uh, incentivizing people to come off duty by increasing the rate of overtime. That's a solution, but it's not the only one. If management or the city or elected officials have other ideas about how to incentivize off-duty firefighters to come work additional hours because they've short-staffed their fire department, we're all ears. It's my understanding that part of your budget was was diverted into homelessness. Do you have any understanding of that? I think that was part of the $13 million that has been slowly taken away from the Fire Bureau budget. Over $13 since, million. since 2016, that's how much has been taken away. And um, I, I can't 100% say where it went, 
but oh, none of us can. That's <laughs> part of the point. I think that's why we're all that's so just, frustrated. All we can say is that is how much that has been taken away from our budget to work with, and why training was shut down for a year, um, and it was some of these things that have caused the staffing shortage and for us to be in crisis. Firefighters, we responded when the pandemic hit in 2000. Everybody was told, hey, uh, you got to stay home. We didn't have that option. We didn't know what COVID-19 was back in 2000. We didn't. We were told, you have to stay home. And if you get it, you don't know what that means. You don't know, we don't know how it spreads. We don't know how it affects children at the time. You know, it was brand new. Excuse me. Uh, but... Yeah, that must have been really scary. It, well, it was, and it was ultimately, you know, we, we've evolved, and now we understand a lot more, and we're moving on from it. But uh, it at the time, it was really intense, and it was when we, you know, it was it was when we the there was there was a different uh, person that was union president back in two thousand, uh, the firefighters, and they settled a contract that essentially, we the workers, the firefighters, gave back four point seven million dollars, in back to the city because they were going to be in this huge shortfall, they said. Because 2020. Because, sorry, 2020. What did I say? 2000. 2020. Thank you. So uh, th- that, was, that was a big gift for the workers, and how we did that was basically by working a lot more hours. We basically said, okay, we're going to work a lot more hours, and, and that will essentially equate to not having to hire people, not having to work as much overtime. But in lieu of that, we settled a, a longer agreement that in the future they would reward us. And what the reward for that was is mandatory overtime. That's what it turned out to be. It turned out to be, well, now we didn't, we didn't hire enough people. We shut down training. We didn't hire enough people. And now we're, there's, there's, we're, short, we're so short-staffed and we didn't do any planning. So your reward for that give back was now we're going to force you to work and reprimand you when you say no. That's where, we're, that's where we're at right now. And what, how this equates to the general public is this. Fire stations are left with less firefighters. That it impacts their safety and firefighter safety at the same time. People call 911, they expect, they expect firefighters there in minutes, seconds. It's but critical. You said five minutes is the, the cutoff, right? After five minutes, you're in trouble? Five minutes for a, for a critical call, like a cardiac arrest, somebody where their heart stops, house is on fire. If we're going to make any credible, uh, their, their survivability of, of people go down after five minutes. It's our job to get there. We have the, the stations, are, we, they're out there. We have firefighters. We, we need more. We know, we, we, there will actually, you know, there will be a study coming out today. Uh, there's going to be some more information coming out today. Uh, as it relates to a recent CityGate study that was released to the city uh, last month, there are about some implementations that are going to be uh, necessary to kind of bring our city to the to the uh, where it should be. How uh, do we learn about this? Where do we go to find out uh, about I, this? I don't know. It's, I've only, I've only been told it's coming out today, so I don't know yet. I haven't read it yet myself, so In, uh, I can send it to you. Oh, that would be great. And okay. it's information about how to get the city back on track. Yes, as it relates to the fire department. Yep. And where's this information coming from? So there's a there was a report last month that came out called the City Gate report. That report showed uh, that uh, essentially the fire department hasn't grown at all, and we are the number of 
the population has been going up and so have the calls for service. And so, you know, even when I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show about, you know, the number of firefighters we have on duty, it's not enough. So not only is that not enough where we would feel like it's fully staffed, we're cutting that below that number. So it's, it's two things need to happen. For one, we need to bring the staffing up to the level it should be. And number two, we need to add to that to respond to the number of calls for service and the increase to the population of the city of Portland. And that's going to really highlight that. So, so there's staffing shortages. Everybody's working, what, one extra shift a week? About that. Which is a lot. Yeah. Um, especially for an emergency services bureau that needs to be on the ball when you're responding to these. I mean, these are life or death crises that you're responding to. So the idea that you can just do that on, uh, you know, after a three-day shift, you can just hop on another 24 hours it seems ludicrous to me. Um, it seems to be lost on the city, which is concerning. Yeah, I mean, every time you work an extra shift, you're just accepting you're just susceptible yourself to uh, higher risk of cancer, where twice as risky to get cancer as general population. Firefighters are. Firefighters yeah. are. So if we're twice as risky by working 50 hours a week, is literally what we work. But you work 100 hours that week, now you're not just twice as likely; you're four times as likely. You're just increasing that. So uh, not only that, obviously the stress of the job, like you just mentioned, it's a very stressful job. The more you're, the more you're exposed to, whether it be carcinogens or, or traumatic incidents, uh, the more likely you are to have uh, ramifications from that. And that's the truth. So you're, we're, our, our life expectancy is much shorter than the general population. Uh, and that's because sleep deprivation, uh, it's because of the, like I said, the cancer, the heart, the lung issues that we experience. Uh, those things add up over time. And is that the more from you being work, in fires? Absolutely, it's it goes it, it goes it's attaches to not only your skin, but it actually attaches to your the clothes the protective clothing we have. And it turns out the protective clothing we have is also has carcinogens and it has also cancer causing chemicals. So it's just. Every time you expose yourself to that stuff, every time you just are that much more likely to have it impact you, and that's the truth. So exposure is uh, exposures are the problem, and so working more hours it just means more exposure. So it's it's not just the it's not just the time; it's the overall impact to our to uh, the firefighters, and that's what we're you know the ultimate goal is to hire enough people so we don't have to be in the situation but right now we need this is kind of we're in a crisis mode and in a crisis mode firefighters are willing to do our part but we cannot be expected to do all of it we need our elected officials to do their part they put us in this position through the systematic cuts since 2016 of 13 million dollars shutting down training not putting the appropriate number of firefighters in the budget and then not attracting and retaining the firefighters that are working here, not attracting new firefighters and not retaining the ones that are currently here. So all of those things together put us in this situation. And, and, that, and all of that impacts public safety because we're, it affects our ability to take those fire trucks out of the stations and respond to their people's emergencies in a, in a timely manner. That's why it matters to me, Nadia, we live here in the city, but it should matter to anybody who, who lives in the city of Portland. It should matter because it, all of that, it all it all ties together, and it all impacts people's safety who live here. 
I think that's what's so puzzling to me. You're t- I'm hearing about these absentee firefighters in pockets on the east side, which it, I'm also hearing, and this is commensurate with my anecdotal experience, just opening my eyes and ears, which, you know, the east side is where you're getting most of these, I mean, the majority of these emergency calls are coming from the east side. Is that right? And you're nodding your head, yes. Yeah. And Joanne Hardesty lives on the east side, and it's crickets for, from her on this. So it's just very puzzling that she doesn't seem to see it as an emergency issue. Isaac, Maria, I know you're busy and um, I really appreciate you all coming in here to educate us. What what else do you want people to know? We're very thankful for the time. We're thankful for the people that have gotten involved and have responded and have called our um, city leaders and demanded that things change for the better um, because it's when people get involved, things happen. And so for that, I'm, I'm grateful that we have support. I'm thankful that we can speak our voice and have people listen and actually want to reach out like you and help and get that word out because you said it's been really hard to um, say we have a problem because we're the ones that always solve them and we're getting to the place where we don't have the resources to be able to solve it ourselves. And so we're, we're asking for help, which is a very difficult thing to do. But I'm so thankful for the people that have reached out to see how they can help and have responded to that. So we look forward to continued support um, because we're definitely, as firefighters, we're going to do our absolute best with what we have. I mean, that's that's part of having a calling, not just a job. And so for that, thank you for having us on. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to continue to make sure that when when these cuts happen across the city, we're going to continue to make sure that they are aired out on social media so we would certainly encourage everyone to follow us uh, and share those messages with your neighbors with your family or, or share them on social media because people need to know that their safety is at risk and the only way they're going to know that is if we start talking about it so we're talking about it and if you want to help us you can help us by sharing those messages when they go out on social media so they can find those on, of course, you're on, we've got your Twitter handles. Um, we've got, uh, Isaac, you have a personal handle, which is Isaac McLennan. And then we've got Portland Firefighters at IAFF43 on Twitter. Those are both on Twitter. And you also have a Facebook page, right? That's right. It's all the same, IAFF43. Um, that's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And Instagram. Okay, and then you, everybody, you heard the call to action. So what we need to do is make telephone calls and send emails to everybody in City Hall, every staffer that you know in City Hall. I would begin with Joan Hardesty because this is her bureau. And I, frankly, I would CC absolutely everybody, all, all of our leadership, our commissioners, our mayor, Wheeler, um, any staffers you know, Sam Adams, um, who, who, of course, has been Wheeler's spokesperson quite a bit in the media as of late, um, Anybody that's talking about really anything having to do with the city and the media, um, CC journalists, CC everybody you know, and and make sure they understand that, that we're in a crisis and that we're demanding that our public safety be taken seriously. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Maria. Thank you, Isaac. And thank yeah. you for doing what you do every day and, and being here in Portland with us doing what um, those of us who are fortunate enough to work in an office like myself don't have to do and, and aren't 
aren't um, subject to the same kind of stressors that you all are. And the idea that you're dealing with these budget cuts on top of that just um, I find really outrageous. So I appreciate your service. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's a pleasure to be of service. Honestly, I really enjoy this job is very rewarding many times. And it's it's you know, this is tough right now. I know we'll, we're, we will, us as a city, I believe, will get through it if we all come together, as we, as I believe we will. Uh, but it's a pleasure to be of service, without a doubt. Yeah, Isaac and I have worked 20-plus years for the city of Portland as a firefighter, and we continue. We plan to continue until our retirement, but we do need the help and support. <laughs>